giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. To summarize, Peter is saying that we must continue to grow if we would keep from becoming barren and unfruitful in our knowledge of Jesus. Conversely, if we see no need to develop and mature in the qualities of knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, kindness, and love, it is because we are suffering from myopia, short-sightedness so severe as to equal blindness. Good and godly knowledge that remains static and stultified causes barrenness in the believer's life. The eye salve that cures short-sighted blindness is the answer. If you're unable to see beyond where you currently stand and project into the future, imagining the battles and victories of tomorrow, then you will feel no urgent need to get on with the process of developing. Myopic people don't mature. The United States did not start amassing munitions or building its army on the day it declared war on Japan. It was able to see the struggle some long way off and propel appropriate progress to answer this crisis crouching around the corner. And on the positive side, the writer of Hebrews reminds us that the heroes of faith died without receiving their promise. But having seen it afar off, they welcomed it. Those that anticipate tomorrow's battles as well as next year's triumphs will never stop improving, increasing, and maturing. They're not living in the past, and they're not living in the dead-end moment of right now. They're preparing and living for the future and all the challenges and promises it contains. How sad it is to meet a man or a woman brimming with potential, seated with God's gifts and promises, but stunted, stalled, and duped into considering only today and neglecting the kingdom at their fingertips. Impatience births impertinence, which aborts all advancement. Have you ever endured a long road trip with a toddler who asked a couple hundred dozen times, Are we there yet? Why do they suffer such impatience? Put yourself on their level and imagine viewing the world from their elevation. All they see is the windowsill and sky. You can sometimes see for miles. He can't. Coming into New Mexico, your heart is elated to glimpse the Sangre de Cristo Mountains. Your long-distance vision allows you to make out the mountains when as yet they're but blue shapes on the horizon but your heart rejoices at the distant sight. He sees only the windowsill and sky. When we first began the nursing home ministry back in 2002, there was nothing glorious or grand to view. Our efforts were small, like baby steps toward destiny. My initial perspective of that ministry perceived only the windowsill and clouds. But I thank God for the day he prompted me to lift my eyes and look around at fields growing white for harvest. I saw lonely, needy people with their toes over the threshold of eternity. I knew they had not encountered or come to know God as I had. This awareness placed a pressing obligation on me. I felt indebted to them and to God. If I did nothing, and as a result, they suffered from their paltry experience and knowledge of God, I would be guilty of neglect and suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. How could I dishonor God when He might rely on me to reveal His power and love to these people on the verge of eternity? In short, my ministry was born as I lost sight of myself and lifted my eyes to see the needs of others. This new vision and awareness of purpose beyond me immediately gave birth to spiritual development. 
the vehicle of my relationship with God, came out of its long stall. I heard and retained the spoken word like never before. Songs took on new meaning. Stories and examples of God's goodness seemed to appear everywhere I looked. Why? Because I had lifted my eyes from myopic self-centeredness. I had begun to give up the short-sightedness that led to blindness and the blindness that stalled my spiritual development. And not all of us lost our short-sightedness at the same time. Some dabblers would come to see the spectacle of these immature teenagers and 20-year-olds growing in the fruits of the Spirit. And from their myopic viewpoints and carnal assessment, it was a going-nowhere exercise in futility. We were wasting our time. We got the raised eyebrows, clearing of throats, lilting intonations of amusement. We got the thinly-veiled questions that hinted at the absurdity of our endeavor. But we got something else, too. We got addicted to the process of opening our hearts and minds, daring to believe God, taking steps of faith, and having our expectations exceeded time and time again. And soon, we were glimpsing shadowy shapes on the horizon that looked a lot like mountains. Admittedly, we couldn't have told you back in 2003 or 2004 that God would use that small band to open an outreach ministry downtown where many scores would come to repentance and receive His Spirit. We couldn't have forecasted the vibrant ministry in teen challenges and prisons around Texas, nor the service and outreach to the projects and rehab centers in this area. We couldn't have imagined the supernatural healings coming, the ministries and ministers of word and song to be born, and the countless lives to be transformed. As we carried on week after week and gave our best and continued to increase and grow, we didn't fully comprehend God's forming of lifelong relationships. We didn't hear or imagine the multiplication and amplification of our feeble baby steps. We didn't anticipate how those faltering efforts would carry us to new shores and the founding of new fellowships in New Zealand, South Africa, Israel, and around the world. But we saw enough. We saw mountains as blue silhouettes on the horizon. And we pressed, strove, struggled, failed, got back up, and kept growing. Those who pictured that dank nursing home dining room as the final destination of our ministry never continued to develop. Whether their prayer life or their music ministry, they stalled. They never dug deep into the Word or challenged themselves to communicate God's grace even beyond their limitations. They were short-sighted. They believed nothing more significant was to come. We felt that this was but the beginning. We both were right. And if tonight you feel stalled and stymied in your maturation, but the person next to you is learning more than ever, seeing more than ever, growing and expanding and bearing fruit more than ever, I submit to you that the difference between the two of you is vision. You're short-sighted, but they still let God lead them up onto the mountain of His vantage point and let them glimpse the country they can only see in a blur, but which He tells them will one day be their inheritance. God's not looking for dabblers. He's putting a team together of those who can glimpse his promises afar and welcome them. If I hadn't seen past that moment there in Meadowlands and given myself to growing and becoming what God required, would there have been a ministry team into which Brother Matthew and Brother Gabe's ministry could be born and develop later on in 2007 and 2009? The ramifications of your trust in God are incalculable. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed it to us by His Spirit. The revelation of God's future preparation is hidden to the natural eye, the natural ear, 
and the natural hardened heart, but it will be revealed in momentary glimpses of faith through the Spirit. But the blinded natural mind says, I don't see anything. And the numb, faithless heart says, what's he talking about? I don't feel anything. And the heirs of promise say, I only see it afar. It's not as clear as I wish, but God has lifted my eyes and I'm going to give my life to reach those mountains. Oh, we couldn't describe those mountains in detail. We couldn't tell you the kind of trees on the face of the slopes, nor the streams that sprang from the rock. We couldn't describe some of your faces sitting in this crowd tonight. We didn't know about some of you who were prodigals, lost from grace, who would come back because of the steps we started when we were yet teenagers. But those promising shapes in the distance were enough to put our feet in motion. Jezreel and Shay, you sit here so happy, a young couple with such promise. Jez, back in Meadowlands, we couldn't yet see Brother Matt's ministry coming forth to later love and disciple you. But where would you be apart from the vision we saw and the steps we took? And Shay, how could we have seen when we started that nursing home ministry in 2002 that it would lead us to a strange town in South Africa by 2015? We didn't see your family or the small fellowship that God has started on that continent when we began. We only saw blurry shapes of promise, but they looked a lot like mountains. You would not be sitting here tonight married to that man if it hadn't been for a vision, a faith, and a team that God organized when you were just a kid. God's answer to trying times is strong relationships, built on truth, bound by conviction, sustained by love. God, forgive me if I become weary with short-sighted people. Those who start strong, commit heartily, put their hand to the plow, and become impatient, impetuous, and impertinent when life doesn't go their way. They burn out when things don't unfold as fast as they think they should, or when obstacles present which can only be overcome by wisdom, trust, and patient perseverance. They see only the windowsill and clouds. We continue to march toward the mountains. The great prophet Elijah once lost sight of the bigger picture. He once fled to the hills and crawled into a cave and sulked in despondency. The Lord came to him saying, Elijah, what are you doing here? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Then the Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel, and anoint Elisha son of Shaphat from Abel Mohalah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Elijah crawled into a cave and told the Lord, I used to be very zealous for the Lord God Almighty, but look at the circumstances, the opposition, it's impossible. Oh, I don't know a leader who hasn't visited Elijah's cave. But when you're sitting there, hearing the drip-drip of the cave, and the drip-drip of one impossibility after another, remember God is seeing the future. He sees the prophet who will come after you, the 7,000 faithful. He sees fiery chariots coming down to carry you into the clouds and glory. 
Years into the future, God views Elisha's ministry, Jehu overthrowing Ahab's dynasty. God sees the widow filling empty oil jars. He sees heaven's armies surrounding the prophet and his servant. And you'll grow no more in your ministry if you confine your imagination and faith to the dripping walls of that cave. Don't let your promise and purpose die in the dirty cavern of fear and frustration. God's answer to crisis is relationship. Go make a connection with Elisha. Go talk to Jehu. I've got a plan that's bigger than the moment you're struggling through right now. Oh, there were schools of prophets Elisha could have fit in just fine with a lot of them. But the concentrated anointing of power wasn't going to flow in his life through 10,000 instructors He needed a father in the Lord. Like Elisha, you're no doubt faced with a lot of options. You've got your farm and oxen, your parents, the prophet's school, and God will let you choose those alternatives to his perfect will. Those options are helpful to God because they reveal your heart and show him you're not the man he thought you were. Even Elijah did his best to precipitate a separation between himself and Elisha if Elisha would allow it to be. Yet at each juncture, when he stuck with the relationship God had ordained, something was proven about Elisha, this new prophet of Yahweh. If he had been blinded with short-sightedness, a head of impatient steam would have built inside his chest. Then, at every juncture, he would have been leaping toward his great opportunities, fracturing the team abandoning the relationship, and scorning the channel of his own grace and anointing. God, Paul tells us, composes the body just as he wants it to be. If you can't get past your wants, you'll never find God's vision and plan. You'll never be fitted or composed into the place he wants you to be. You must crucify your perspective, before you'll ever know God's viewpoint and wishes. Proverbs 14 and Proverbs 16 tell us the same thing. There is a way which seems right to a man and appears straight before him, but the end of that way is death. Another translation says it like this. There is a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. Sure, you're tempted by things you know are wrong, and those enticements threaten your soul. But the path to be most wary of is the one you're sure is right. I'm talking about the natural route, the apparent course, that one that just seems reasonable, obviously, and so therefore. But instead, the Lord asks you to commit your way to Him. Trust also in the Lord, and He will do it. God would have you fear the path you're pretty sure is right, the course guided and lit by self-confidence. You know not what the future holds, Nor can you comprehend beyond the windowsill and clouds unless God graciously enlightens you to see and pursue His eternal purpose. Though a little blurry, like shadowy mountains in the future, it may look. We know that Elijah was able to pass on the mantle of anointing through the relationship of sonship he had with Elisha. Sadly, it seems the servant of the second prophet never found the same kind of trust, commitment, or loyalty to him. Gehazi had an eye for the world and the things of the flesh and lost his place. The servant of Elisha seemed afflicted with short-sightedness and natural fears. When impossibilities surrounded the prophet and servant, the servant panicked. Elisha prayed, Lord, Open this young man's eyes. I think Elisha was praying against natural-mindedness and short-sightedness that day. Gladly, the young man saw God's armies surrounding them, and his fears were allayed. Sadly, 
it seems the servant never understood what his relationship with Elisha was meant to be. His eyes were open to his own protection, but not to the relationship that might have made him become for his master, as his master had been for Elijah. I remember a day in 2009 when my dad called me. The outreach ministry downtown was sailing smooth. Powerful meetings, people praying through, growing in in the spirit. You could almost say we were on a roll. My dad calls me up one day and says, You know, I want to see the burden that God has put in your heart extend further to include the larger church. My heart began to palpitate, not so much with thrill as dread. Why? Because I was comfortable in my current position. My feet were pretty sure. But this new step was threatening to dismantle my comfort zone. I was being asked to lift up my eyes and see horizons I'd never before considered. When you find your little niche where you can do your small gift in your little safe corner, you might have found a place for yourself, but you have not yet discovered Christ's altar of sacrifice. If it's comfortable for your flesh, it's likely Tarshish and not Nineveh. If it's Tarshish, it's not your purpose. There's no power in it. There's no reward in it. Just the lulling to sleep that turns into turbulence of a storm and eventually hurls you into the abyss. Do you think God spoke in plain, audible words to Jonah? Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. I'm really not sure that's how God spoke. God is spirit, and his spirit moves on hearts. I think Jonah may have been sitting at home saying to his wife, Honey, I need to do something. I've got to make a change in my life. Perhaps he was ruminating and praying over it a few days. What am I supposed to do, Lord? I'm just surmising, but I think I can imagine. It may have been a dream. Someone may have said the word, but somehow there was a quickening to his heart that told him Nineveh was his altar and place to make the sacrifice to God. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh and cry out against that city. Well, he did the first part. He arose. I can almost see him walking down to the harbor that day and talking to himself. Hallelujah. Oh, it feels good to be going somewhere. Swinging his bag over his shoulder. Amen. Remember the last time I was in Nineveh? Such a stinky place. Hot. Oh, and those smug people. Wait. What does that ship down in the bay say? Yeah, Tarshish. Oh, man. I think that's what God was saying. I remember when we went there last. I'm feeling... I'm feeling something on my heart for Tarshish. Yeah, yeah, it's Tarshish. Excuse me, sir. I'll take one ticket to Tarshish. Do you want a return ticket? No, just the one way. That'll be good. Oh, this will be great. Let me just get situated down here in the hold of the ship and catch some much-needed R&R among the soft baggage. Oh, what's going on? Yeah, yeah, I'm down here. How can I help? Oh, God, what have I done? Pretty soon he's saying, throw me into the sea and your storm will stop. The carnal mind will conspire to hijack an impetus from God and divert your direction from an altar of sacrifice to a diversion for your flesh. Back to my story, my dad called me and said, I want you to go to Nineveh, the youth group. And because of that uncomfortable step, we started youth meetings. And because we started youth meetings, I have this man, Brother Gabe, as a partner in the ministry. He'd been working with Brother Josiah for a brief time. And through that connection, he began to assist in music at those Thursday night youth meetings. And a relationship was born to endure the test of time. I thought God was stretching me, and he was, but he was also adding strength to me through relationships like this one. Every step of the journey, some have looked sideways and said, I don't know about that. 
What on earth are we doing? Is this really God's will? It used to be so much better and easier. And some wash out. Some burn out. All struggle. Some stick with the course and live to touch the mountains and taste the miracles reserved only for the faithful. Hebrews 11.27 By faith, Moses left the land of Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He kept right on going because he kept his eyes on the one who is invisible. I want you to understand what he's saying. Moses was able to keep going because he kept his eyes on something he couldn't see except through the eyes of faith and by the spirit of revelation. If you want to get out of your stall, lift up your eyes. If you want to keep on going and go from strength to strength, ask God to heal you of this faithless short-sightedness. Ask him to remind you of the great mountain ranges of promise just on the horizon ahead. Oh, the short-sighted can't see beyond the radius of their reach and this moment, this setback, this misunderstanding, this trial. But Jesus was able to look past his crisis, despise the shame of the cross and scorn its agony because he saw the joy set before him. He was not short-sighted. Yes, the Bible teaches us that the man of God may feel isolated from time to time, even misunderstood or abandoned by his companions. For example, consider the words of Paul. He wrote Timothy in the middle of one of his toughest trials and said, You are aware of the fact that all who were in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Just three chapters later, he writes more to Timothy. Timothy, please come as soon as you can. Demas has deserted me because he loves the things of this life and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus has gone to Dalmatia. Only Luke was with me. Bring Mark when you come, for he will be helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. And then again, just a few verses later, he writes further. This is a man in anguish. Listen to what he says. Quote, At my first trial, no one came and stood by me. No one came to my support. Everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and the Gentiles might hear it, and I was delivered from the lion's mouth. This man has a team. They're working as co-workers with the Lord in his great purpose. Then in the heat of his trial, his whole team fragments. Some he sends on the mission of the Lord. Some chase the world. Others cower and miss the relevance of their service to the suffering apostle. Paul, who opened salvation and understanding to the Gentiles, ourselves included, started countless churches, wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, and is one of history's most notable influencers, is abandoned during his toughest hour. Not a Christian showed up to stand with him at his first hearing. I hurt when I read it. Paul goes on, At my first defense, no one stood with me, but everyone deserted me. And so I curled into the fetal position and wrote a lamentation about how hard my life was. Is that what he says? No. He says, Everyone deserted me. Very next word, May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me power so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and the Gentiles might hear it. I was delivered from the mouth of the lion, and I will be delivered again. Paul is no whiner. Things haven't turned out the way he thought. His closest companions suffer short-sighted blindness. The team fragments. Flesh disappoints him. 
but he felt the assuring presence of the God who will never leave him or forsake him standing by him, and thus he gave great witness under the power of the Holy Spirit, so that in the most unlikely environment of a hostile Roman courtroom, the gospel was preached by Paul. Did Jesus ever face isolation? With his foresight, he told the apostles, the Son of Man will be betrayed, delivered over to sinners, and put to death. But on the third day, he will rise. That's called foresight. He told them, don't be surprised when these things happen. I'm telling you now. In John 6, look at the unity and strength that the Messiah derives from his companions. Quote, you are the ones who have stood with me in all my trials. Those are Jesus' words to the apostles just before they abandon him. Then he says to them, A time is coming and has already come when you will be scattered each to his own home. You will leave me alone, yet I am not alone. My Father is with me. Like Paul, when he was alone, he wasn't alone because the God who never leaves the faithful was standing at his side. Mark 14, 15 poignantly states, quote, And they all forsook him and fled. What caused them to forsake him? Brothers and sisters, I want to know what caused them to desert the Lord. They were short-sighted. Job says, My brothers, you have proved as unreliable as a seasonal stream that overflows its banks in the spring when it is swollen with ice and melting snow. But when the hot weather arrives, the water disappears. The brook vanishes in the heat. The caravans turn aside to be refreshed, but there is nothing to drink, so they die. Job is saying, I've got a whole caravan of need in my life right now, and I would have expected some help. Instead, you're utterly self-absorbed, present during runoff, dry when needed most. You're making me feel as if your neglect is going to kill me. David, while fleeing from Absalom, received a messenger who announced, The hearts of all the men of Israel are with Absalom. What a word of faith. The man who built the city. The man who gave birth to Absalom who guarded and protected those people. And how is he thanked? All of Israel is with Absalom. Then another messenger came and told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Yahweh, I pray make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. And I believe it worked. Consider King David. At least 18 years elapsed from the time he was called from the sheepfold and anointed by Samuel until he actually became king over Israel. He became a musician for the irritable Saul a couple years later. Then he showed up at an auspicious moment to take on the Philistine champion in his most notable battle against Goliath. As a result, Saul offered David his daughter in marriage and invited him to his court. But he's cheated in his marriage, and before long, Saul dismisses him from his court, attempts to kill him, but makes him commander of the army instead. Finally, the bipolar behavior from Saul becomes so dangerous that David flees for his life. He spends seven years in exile, evading Saul and his agents. He visits God's priest, Ahimelech, and is given bread from the altar and the sword of Goliath. Consequently, Saul massacres all the priests at the monastery, except one who slipped away, Abiathar, son of Ahimelech. In the last 16 months of David's exile, he strikes an unlikely alliance with the Philistine king, who agrees to let him live in a town called Ziklag, a stronghold and village. But his troubles are far from over. The Philistines have a peace treaty with David, so they leave well enough alone. But David and his mighty men are away, 
And while they're gone, the old thorny Amalekites come swooping in, burn down the whole town of Ziklag, and kidnap all their kids and wives and steal all their possessions. The first book of Samuel describes the direst scene. Quote, now David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved. Every man for his sons and his daughters. To repeat, David's mighty men were so full of sorrow that they were talking openly of killing him. And the Bible says he was distressed. So David curled up in the fetal position and wrote a lamentation and died that night of stone-inflicted wounds. No, that's not what it says. I want us to think about the mentality churning in these men's minds to precipitate an impulse to stone the Lord's anointed, the man after God's own heart, the architect of Jerusalem and the temple, the psalmist of Yahweh, and the grandfather of Messiah. These mighty men had stuck it out with David for seven arduous years. What in human nature pushes once loyal people to point the accusing finger and begin to talk of stoning their leader in times of crisis. I submit to you that it is short-sightedness. Short-sightedness births impatience, and impatience, impudence, impudence, wrath, and wrath, insanity. David's companions were men of action. I'm going to repeat that. His companions were men of action. Yet... Their leader must have seemed to them bridled and stifled by frustrating conventions of order and honor. They began sure that he was God's anointed and their man of action, but when they displayed their heroic loyalty by scaling a fortress to get him a drink, he showed strange humility and poured it out as an offering to Yahweh, feeling unworthy of the sacrifice. When this band of God's anointed starved in the hill country only to be shunned and insulted by Nabal, the mighty men rallied and prepared for a bloody massacre. But the gentle warning of a woman hindered the heart of David from committing this terrible sin. And when at last they had their murderous nemesis, King Saul, in their grasp, David balked because of his strange notions about humility, God's order, and God's anointed. On the day when the man rejected by Yahweh would die, the mighty men should have been out there on the battlefield, fighting against him, liberating Israel, and installing David in his place. Yet once again, he refused a clear opportunity because of his inner compunctions. And now they return from yet another anticlimax to find scorched embers and learn their families are the captives of thugs. I believe the narrative suggests these men of action had had enough. The future of all Israel teetered in the balance between their frustration and loyalty. I don't know if David wept hidden tears that night for the betrayal of his friends. I know I would have. We know that in his distress, when facing betrayal and death, he called for Abiathar, son of the slain Ahimelech, and asked to be given a garment of prayer. As if to block out the panic of the flesh, the betrayal of friends, and the impossibilities all around, he covered his head with the ephod and began to encourage himself in the Lord. I ask you tonight, what is the gap in your life between when God gave you the promise and when it became realized? Has it been seven years? Have you felt stalled? Have you said to yourself time and again, this could be so much simpler. We could just do this. We want to get on with building the kingdom. Maybe the mighty men began to question what they once believed. Is this David really anointed? Did Samuel really pour that oil on him and give him that commission? Samuel is dead. For five and a half long years, we've stood with this guy. 
I don't know, I'm getting fed up with this. David said to Abiathar, the priest, Ahimelech's son, bring me the ephod. And Abiathar brought him the ephod. Abiathar is the son of the man whom Saul slaughtered because of his loyalty to David. But Abiathar hasn't grown bitter. He's still helping David. David doesn't say, Abiathar, bring me a quill that I may pen my final lament. He doesn't die a tragic hero with a gut-wrenching poem crumpled in his bloody hand. He says, bring me the ephod. Bring me a garment of praise. Something to help me enter God's presence again. The Bible doesn't say why they decided not to stone him. It just says David encouraged himself in the Lord. As if that's all it takes to dispel the cluster of murder that was gathering around him. The equation was reversed. And they went from whining and bitterness to chasing after their enemy and taking back everything the devil stole. God doesn't do things in our way or in our time. And there are times when our short-sightedness leads to blindness and that to faithlessness. In those moments, we must remember and encourage ourselves in the Lord. Short-sightedness assumes that broken families, lost promises, stolen possessions, and a burned-out city conclude the story. But Ziklag wasn't the end. It was but a bend in the road. A brief grief and testing, proving and preparing the king for his throne. Our short-sightedness says, I can't take this anymore. God doesn't want you to take it anymore. He's got a victory. If you'll just get out of yourself and get into prayer, you're going to get back everything the devil took, and nothing will ever be the same again. He may not describe your future in detail, but he'll spark a small feeling in your heart that suggests worlds of promise beyond your viewpoint, like shadowy mountains in the distance. If you're a man after God's own heart, you won't let that spark fizzle out, even after seven or 18 years of waiting. God, when he called David to tend the flocks, he knew he was ready to take on a lion and a bear. And when David wrestled those beasts, God was seeing a laughing giant on a hill. When David swung that sling round his head and believed in God's power, God was seeing the 400 Philistine warriors of tomorrow falling under his servant's sword. God is always looking ahead beyond this crisis. And when David faced his last, most personal pre-kingdom struggle, loss and betrayal at Ziklag, but encouraged himself in the Lord and pressed toward victory, God saw a man at last ready to be king. They reclaimed everything the devil stole. Immediately everything changed. David's obstacle, his nemesis, cheater, competitor, envious, conniving, fearful Saul died. Your obstacles are there to keep you humble and dependent on God. If you had no barrier in your smooth path of progress, you couldn't come over anything. And therefore you would not be an overcomer. But only overcomers get to heaven. The obstacles are a blessing in disguise. They separate the clever from the anointed, the strength of man from the power of God. Don't give up on the dream or the relationship. Many do. Joseph didn't. David didn't, Jesus didn't, Paul didn't, some of us never will. We are waiting for that moment when the Lord says to us what he said at the dedication of this church in 1973 on East 14th Street. Your Saul is dead. Your obstacle, nemesis, impossibility, hunter and competitor is dead. Now go take your kingdom. You didn't take matters into your own hands. 
You didn't burn out. You didn't pitch your fit. You waited on the Lord, and He brought it to pass. And He brought something to pass in you, too. A character suitable for the times, and a faith to see you all the way into eternity. David would later say, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desire of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He will do it. Endure one more skirmish with the Amalekites, one more month in Ziklag, and believe something greater is afoot. I want to tell somebody tonight it doesn't end at Ziklag. While you're praying with the ephod, God sees the stronghold of the Jebusites, only called by a new name, Jerusalem, a city of peace. God sees the Ark of the Covenant in the temple that's filled with glory. God sees the Messiah and the new covenant. He sees the heavenly Jerusalem as the bride of Christ descending out of heaven. Don't quit the struggle. Don't give up at Ziklag. Get out of Ziklag. Get back into the presence of the Lord. Let faith enlighten your vision till you see the shadows of promise again as mountains in the distance. Press on. After Ziklag came the compact of Hebron. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a compact with them before Yahweh, and they anointed David king over all Israel. Then came the stronghold of the Jebusites. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, You will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They underestimated the power of a man addicted to trusting God. And they underestimated the impact and power of a team that had survived even moments where the devil tried to tear them apart. They thought David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion On that day, David said, Anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. That is why they say, The blind and the lame will not enter the house. David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the supporting terraces inward. We need a compact to banish short-sightedness self-centeredness, and impatience. We need an agreement between ourselves to see the vision, keep the faith, and protect the bonds of love between us. Who will make that compact with me tonight? There are strongholds called by strange names tonight, which God has already set His mark on. There are places around this world of struggle and triumph, where the kingdom will soon be established. Will you die in Ziklag, or will you come and go with us as we move from Ziklag to the kingdom, and from the kingdom to the stronghold of the Jebusites, and from the stronghold of the Jebusites to the plans for the temple and the return of the ark? Let the short-sighted stay with Saul or go their way, but let those with a vision keep the course. Multitudes are waiting, and some are watching as we fight our Goliaths or struggle through our Ziklag crises. The dream lives on, and we're going to be part of it. We might have been in Ziklag for a while, but it doesn't end there. Yesterday I burned a heap of torn-down sheds and old fences. The fire caught on only with great difficulty. I asked my wife to bring an accelerant from 15 minutes away, Yet impatience got the better of me, and I attempted to light the pile with just one small butane starter. The old dry wood just wouldn't catch. The wind blew it out every time. The wind is a fragile flame's worst enemy until that flame catches on, and then the same thing that tried to prevent it becomes the power fanning it, spreading it, billowing through it, and making it a force to be reckoned with. Likewise, the strong winds of oppositions now preventing your spiritual ignition will fan your flames and keep you burning if you'll just keep at it.
even after I got one piece in that enormous pile to catch on, I didn't believe in the small flame. I left and rummaged around the property in search of an accelerant. Suddenly, I'm hearing crackles and pops and puffs coming from around the backyard. I discounted the feeble flame. Sure, it would be blown out in minutes. But the winds that attempt to snuff out the feeble start become like a blowtorch for the flames that stay lit. Buried under my great pile was a tiny little stone ring of a fire pit. The blaze grew so furious that the grass withered and died. Trees nearby wilted and dried. We couldn't get within ten feet without getting scorched, and the stones around the fire pit split. Some of the wood was dry and highly flammable. Some of the materials had been treated with fire retardant and initially resisted catching on. Thin, splintery pieces sparkled and burned fast while dense, larger beams took their time. Yet the explosion of energy and heat was irresistible. In the end, everything caught on. Everything burned completely. As the inferno raged on into the evening, the giant clumsy pile shrank and condensed to a blazing heap of coals, which I attempted to shovel into the tidy fire ring once again exposed. When I'd had enough and I wanted to be done, I opened the water faucet full bore and doused the angry embers till steam erupted like a pillar of cloud. For fifteen minutes or more, I inundated that fire with quenching water. When confident my thorough dousing had had its desired effect, I asked my brother to keep an eye on it from the adjacent property, and I went home. Three hours later, I pulled up behind the house in the dark to see an orange glow hovering above the fire pit. The giant mass of coals had been so hot that even though I successfully drenched 90%, the few remaining embers reignited the rest. An individual or two, a light with God's zeal, is terrific, but they can go out so easily. Yet if a compacted group of like-minded people ignite with burning commitment and purpose, sparked by tongues of fire from heaven, nothing will quench their blaze. Though the winds blow relentlessly, and though storms douse the flames, and even if most begin to steam for a time under the world's deluge, a handful of coals keep burning in a corner or at the bottom of the pile. Zeal for his house consumes them. Through the consecration of a few, the whole pile will reignite and blaze as hot and bright as if no extinguisher had ever come. Yes, even the wet coals will burn again. They will blaze with the zeal for God's house that consumes all flesh and earthly concerns. Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done in our lives and actions, in our thoughts and words, in our relationships and vision. Let your fire burn in our souls, consuming all earthly plans and desires. For Zion's sake, let us never keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, let us never hold our peace until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a blazing torch. Mm-hmm.